0: Uh, If you've got your Bible, you can go ahead and turn to the epistle of Jude, which is the uh, second to last book in the New Testament. And this may be our fourth or fifth teaching through Jude already, and you may be already getting an idea of the outline of the book. Where Jude starts out with just an incredibly warm introduction, reminding his readers of the gospel he reminding them in verse one that they are called by god 's uh, sovereign purposes, uh, they are sanctified and set apart uh, by his grace and by the power of his spirit. every christian is is daily being brought away from The system of this sinful world and being conformed into the image of Christ, such an encouraging thing for us. Uh, And maybe even today, that would be the day that begins with you, even during worship and the the call to take communion with us, that that you could just feel the call of God on you to be a follower of Jesus. And today would be the day even for you where you would be uh, today just pulled away from the system of the world that is sensual and earthy and demonic and selfish and and so many other just horrific things that lead to the death of a community and of a people, and you would be put towards uh, the image of Christ and all of his love and selflessness and sacrificial love and unconditional love and grace towards others and mercy towards others and a purpose in your life today as you would be sanctified towards Christ and then the great future tense there in verse 1, those who are preserved in Jesus Christ, that you have that hope and assurance of salvation, that, uh, that, that he's going to keep you till the end, and you will be in his presence. Uh, you've heard the last four weeks that, that there's these great good news bookends to this one chapter book. There in verse 1, you've got that wonderful past, present, future hope. You've got the multiplication of mercy, peace, and love towards you as a Christian there in verse 2. And then at the end of the book, that latter bookend would be that God is able to keep you, verse 24. He's able to keep you from stumbling, He's able to present you faultless before the presence of His glory. And do it in a a way that there's exceeding joy in it. So those are good things. Those are good news. Those are what we call redemptive indicatives. They are things that indicate God's great love and redemption towards us. And sandwiched in between those bookends, uh, there's two metaphors going on. there. There's there's a sandwich and there's a bookshelf. So you figure it out for yourself. But sandwiched between the wonder bread of the gospel, I guess is what it would be, uh, is this Warning, uh it, it's this um frustration towards certain men who are creeping into the church and they are exchanging uh the grace of God for lewdness or sensuality or immorality. You find that in verse four. Uh there's these certain men who deny the lordship of Jesus Christ. And and it's it's this interesting um, frustration uh, of Jude against these certain wicked men. It's it's an interesting book because in the introduction Jude says, "Hey, I wanted to start out this book and write it to you, and just have a good time of rejoicing in the common salvation that we have." And he says, "But I I found that it's just it's necessary that I write." Uh, about these certain guys that are creeping in. like You've got to be warned about them. And so he does what I read this week is called um, a shaking of the shoulders of the readers. And I kind of like that because as you read the book, there's this this frustration that people don't have discernment. There's this frustration that people are just letting these guys in and they're not catching them right away. Um, And so there's this just necessary, just shaking of the shoulders, kind of a wake-up call to the church. And it's pretty strong language. It's language that is actually common um, for religious leaders in that day to use towards their people. Um, and when you understand this, the, the depth of what Jude is dealing with, it's a matter of life and death. It's some pretty necessary stuff. That's why he says, I found it necessary to write to you Concerning our common, uh, rather not common, so he swapped off of that, and he went to um, to contend. He says it was necessary to write to you that you would contend earnestly for the faith and and fight against these certain men. So there's this whole section from verse four uh, all the way up through about uh, nineteen where he just kind of airs the grievances he has against these certain men. And last week we saw um, examples that these certain men have been a tale as old as time. And there's examples of these types of guys clear back from history. Uh, He says in verse five, but I want to remind you though you once knew this, that the Lord having saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So Jude is going to use some examples from history of what happens when people follow these certain men and, and the things that there's a, there's a progression chronologically of what happens in people, even people of faith as they listen to these certain men. And so the first example, uh, is, is the example of the children of Israel. And their problem was that even though they had this radical deliverance out of the land of Egypt, through the Red Sea, through the desert, they were given angels food to eat. They drank water that came out of a desert rock. You know, They totally had the provision of the Lord. They had the tabernacle and the glory of the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day. And, and yet with all of this past experience, This people fell into unbelief. And so in the history lesson that Jude would give, he he gives the the warning against unbelief. And unbelief will then lead to rebellion. So the next history lesson that Jude gives is that of the fallen angels. And most likely the story from Genesis chapter 6. Here in Jude 6, it says the angels... Who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode? He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So uh, it's it's a crazy story. It's a crazy study when you study Genesis chapter six and these angels that that had fallen from uh, glory. They had fallen from their proper domain of being uh, worshipers of God and of being ministers, uh, in a guardian angel type sense. And these fallen angels went and they, uh, had sexual relations with actual women. And, uh, and they created an offspring that was, um, some have called them the Nephilim. You know, they're kind of like this giant Uber human Superman type, but, but strange and dark and wicked. And, uh, and some would even go so far as to say the reason for the flood in that and Noah's house being pure in all of its generations is that there was no mark of this type of blood in him. And so uh, he was a pure family that was brought through the flood out of this odd angel-woman relation stuff that you read about there in Genesis chapter 6. And so the, uh, the, that second lesson from history is that unbelief leads to uh, rebellion and a rebellion, and not trusting God for His role for you in your life. The angels had their role, and uh, and we have our roles in life. Uh, and the third thing that we see in the history lesson that we read of and left off on last week was the history lesson from the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities there. In verse 7, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So unbelief, Whenever we would start out in a place of letting our heart drift into unbelief, as the children of Israel, uh, unbelief is at the heart of all sin. So we talked about last week, there in the Garden of Eden, when the serpent came and tempted Eve, his his first thing was, did God really say, and get you to try to doubt God and to doubt his words. Uh, And unbelief will always lead to rebellion, as it did with Adam and Eve, and rebellion always leads to immorality and Here in the story of Sodom and gomorrah, they they uh, gave themselves over to sexual immorality, and then they even went further and had gone after strange flesh and We did a whole look at last week uh, that strange flesh was uh, that there their certain sin was of homosexuality. So, if you missed last week, I'd encourage you to get online, either our YouTube channel, or get on and listen to the MP3. Subscribe to the podcast, and uh, and you can hear what the Bible has to say about homosexuality and what Jude would call strange flesh, and that those sins go to a condemnation of of judgment from God. In Sodom and Gomorrah's case, it was the vengeance of eternal fire. It wasn't just the vengeance of fire and brimstone coming down in that moment uh, in the book of Genesis, but it's an eternal fire that comes to all of those who would not believe God, who would rebel against God, and who would uh, give themselves over to immorality. That there's judgment from a holy God against sin. But the good news is, is yes, while there's condemnation, while there's uh, damnation against sinners, there's also grace and mercy for sinners. And we find that at the cross where at the cross where Jesus died, you see a fullness of judgment from the father upon sin. And you also see the fullness of mercy and love towards sinners and that he made a way for us to be forgiven of our unbelief. To be forgiven of our rebellion, thinking that we know better than God and we're going to do it our way. To be forgiven of our immorality when we give ourselves over to those things. There at the cross, as we we remembered in communion this morning, Jesus took on himself the sins of the whole world. And if anyone would believe on him and believe that he took your sins, you will not perish in the vengeance of eternal fire. But you will be saved. You'll be pulled out of that and rescued, not just rescued for nothing, but actually rescued for the greatest purpose that God ever designed for man, being part of his kingdom, being part of his family, being part of his plan. Uh, I think it was uh, uh, Constable that said, either we bring our morality under the truth of the gospel or we fiddle with the truth of the gospel so that it will accommodate our morality. And I think that's what we're seeing in the world today. All of the different worldviews out there that just try to accommodate everyone and be tolerant towards everyone, there's no possible way to be tolerant towards everyone because everyone's beliefs are not tolerant towards everybody, including the scriptures. There is specific truth in the scriptures that Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And no man will come to the Father but by Jesus. And so, you know, as, as we look at the examples from history in the book of Jude, we can either do it our way and suffer the consequences, which are wrath and, and horrific, um, or we can uh, come and kneel before the the morality that's given us before the Bible and let the Bible change us and give us life uh, through the gospel so that we can now live lives of purity and holiness. Um, And so uh, great lessons from history. He's not done yet. We're going to see a couple of other examples in just a little bit. But look in verse 8 with us. Where it says, Likewise also... And this is where we begin to cover new ground today. Likewise, also, these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. And so you have uh, these, these certain men, and you'll look over there in verse 4. Certain men have crept in unnoticed who were long ago marked out for this condemnation. They're ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, These certain men that Jude is kind of waking us up toward, he calls them dreamers in verse 8. Now, is that so bad? I mean, we're kind of a culture that likes a good dream, don't we? You know, we, we really appreciate Martin Luther King Jr. and his I have a dream speech. It's so famous and it's really good, actually. And, uh, you know, we enjoy being dreamers in our culture. We enjoy being visionaries. Uh, We enjoy pursuing our passions and things like that. But the dream that's being spoken of here is that these group of men, these certain men, they don't care what the Bible has to say. They have no grounding in the authority of what's called the word of God. But many of the different translations, if you have the ESV, You'll notice that it says, these men are relying on their dreams. Or the New American Standard Bible that says, by dreaming, they defile the flesh. Or maybe you've got the NIV here today. On the strength of their dreams, they defile the flesh. So what it's talking about here is that these certain men have a disregard for the authority of the scriptures. And they care more about Their dreams, all right? They rely on their dreams and the strength of their dreams. Stuff that actually happens within the church today, I've I've met many people that uh, they're just so excited that they've had some sort of a dream or a vision that they disregard the word of God and they follow after their dream instead. That's a very dangerous thing. Namely, when the dream contradicts the word of God. That's when you toss your dream out and repent and ask God to start having you good dreams at night, right? try to, like, or keep me on the straight and narrow in my dreaming, because because um, uh, the enemy also can creep in in such ways. But you've got these dreamers that defile the flesh, and I just wrote in my notes, right right? All right, so if someone comes in and they're really... You know, there's someone that seems like you could follow and man, they've got just great oration skills and they're just so handsome and they can just, man, really woo the audience with that golden tongue and just getting people just getting all riled up. And he's just so full of passion and people love passion these days. Oh, and he's got a dream and oh, everyone wants to hear about the dream and this and that. But if already this guy goes into defiling the flesh, oh man, that is a mark against this individual or if he's someone that rejects authority, that's another strike against this individual. You know, the natural man hates authority. Box at submission to any kind of authority. Where submission requires humility and deference and preferring others and yielding to one another in love. The carnal man says, my way. It's my way or the highway. It's all about me. They're very selfish, we're going to read in a little bit. These dreamers, these certain men, want to be the ones in authority. And so one of the first things they'll do is they'll toss out the authority of the word of God. Well, I'll just go ahead and be my own authority. These dreamers defile the flesh, lead people into sinful practices, And they reject authority. I like what David Guzik, a Calvary Chapel pastor, had to say. He said, today our culture encourages us to reject authority. And haven't you seen the phrases on the t-shirts and on the memes? You know, question authority. And uh, it's okay to question. It's okay to be like, okay, so where's the source of this person's authority? Who are they? Why are they an authority in my life? But authority can actually be a good thing. There are God-given roles Uh, within our lives, both within the church and within our culture and within our homes and our families. But today, Guzik says, our culture encourages us to reject authority and to recognize self as the only real authority in our lives. He says we can do this with the Bible by choosing to only believe certain passages. We can do it with our beliefs by choosing from the salad bar of religious options or we can do it with our lifestyle by making our own rules and not recognizing the proper authority that God has established. And it's really interesting when you read the book of Judges. Judges is called the dark uh, the dark ages of Israel's history, and the phrase that you'll read many times in the book of Judges. This is a very dark book. There's a lot of just crazy dark and weird and sad stories in the book of Judges. But something that you see that made that era so dark for Israel was from the repeated phrase throughout the book, and that is, in those days there were no king, and the people did what was right in their own sight. Okay? Whenever we do what is right in our own sight, we open up an era of dark age within our uh, personal life, within our family, within our church, and within our community. And so we don't just do what's right in our own eyes. We, we want to submit ourselves to the scriptures, to the word of God, where God, the creator of the universe, has set up the way to live that best works for the, the societies and the communities and the cultures that he's created. These dreamers also speak evil of dignitaries. When you read the law, when you read Exodus chapter 22, for instance, it, it says you shall not revile God, nor shall you speak evil of a ruler of your people. And something that these certain men do is they speak evil of rulers of their people. And I don't know about you guys, but you know, for me, I'm just kind of sensitive to it. Maybe I, maybe I don't really know if, how right I am or whatnot, but I just know that even in times where we have presidents and rulers of our people in our land that I would disagree with, there's like the sobriety in me towards them that God and his sovereignty put this man into office for this day and for this time. And when you study Romans chapter 10, when you study the Psalms, it's, it's so that you know even the boundaries of where our nation is, it's all for the glory of God and there's purpose behind it. So, you know, when we have a President Obama, I just... I'm just cautious in my conviction that I'm not, I mean, I just don't even like to call him Obama. I didn't like like to call him Obama. And I don't like to call our current president just Trump. You know, to me, there's just like a reverence for the man that God has in the office and that God has established and, and for our nation and where we're at at this current time. And so I want to be a guy that's praying for our leaders, no matter how great or no matter how wicked they are. I don't want to, in my conversations, be the guy that's speaking evil of the rulers that God has put over us uh, on that level or on any level, even within, you know, whether it's the, the heads of the home or the heads of the church or the heads of the community, the heads of our state, you know, Kate Brown, like pray for, uh, you know, Miss Brown, that we would be able to see change in her life and that the Lord would get a hold of her and, and bring the gospel before her and soften her heart. But uh, the law said, you know, you shall not curse the ruler of your people. There's kind of a funny story in the book of Acts. When Paul is arrested and he's brought before the Sanhedrin, he begins to uh, speak and share his testimony to the council. And he says, men and brethren, he says, I have lived in all good conscience before the Lord unto this day. And the high priest didn't like that, that Paul said that. And so the high priest orders a guy standing by Paul to slap him in the face or to strike him in the mouth. And it's just this slightly humorous thing that happens. Paul then turns and says to the high priest, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You guys remember that story? And those who stood by, Paul says, do you dare to speak that way to God's high priest? And there's just this interesting, like, repenting and stepping back from Paul. Like, I did not know that that was the high priest, or else I would not have spoken such a way. For it is written, you shall not revile the leaders of your people. So he kind of steps back after just this awesome rebuke back. You know, like, God will strike you, you dirtbag. You. Oh, man, my bad, guys. My bad. My bad. You know? And uh, you got to love it, right? But interesting, because as I was studying this, yes, It's true that the speakings towards the authorities ought to be with reverence, and and there's a heart of that there. But when you start looking at the different translation, uh, for instance, the English Standard Version, it says that these men blaspheme the glorious ones. And then the NASB, New American Standard, says they revile angelic majesties. Or the New International Version says They heap abuse on celestial beings. Okay, so it's kind of interesting. Like, yes, it's true. This about reviling leaders and those in authority. But then as you look, it's like, man, there's something in the context of the way that they would even speak towards angels, right? And it goes in in the angelic context there in verse 9. Yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So Michael, the archangel, when he was in a spat with the devil, he didn't dare even speak directly to the devil. I mean, the the devil was once one of the most glorious angels, Lucifer, And there was something powerful about even the devil that in the, in the fighting over Moses's body, uh, that he just said, you know what, I'm going to leave this one to the big guy. (laughs) You know, I'm going to let the Lord take care of you because while we may may be able to get ourselves in some crazy strangleholds and I might give you a noogie devil and you might give me a wedgie, you know, um, I'm just going to go ahead and say, uh, yeah, yeah done. Right. The Lord's going to take care of this. Uh, There's interesting application from this for those of you that someday soon might be involved in some sort of exorcism of Emily Rose uh, that you might just back off a little bit, spend some time praying and fasting, and then in your speaking, have the Lord rebuke rather than throwing upon yourself some certain mantle of power over, you know, give it a try, sure. But uh, you might just want to step back and say, the Lord rebuke you. I remember hearing pastors bring this sort of application to the text. But the interesting thing is there's this application of the the lesser to the greater. And you've got this Michael the archangel who just has almost a, a reverent tone in the way he would even have spoken towards uh, the devil, let the Lord rebuke you. And, and then you've got these certain men, these creeps, these dreamers that are defiling the flesh and speak evil of dignitaries. And, and they want to, in their just wickedness, uh, just take on the spiritual realms, take on angels and speak uh, re- reviling towards uh, the holy ones or even towards the angels. Uh, interesting text there from Jude for us. And then we move on in verse 10. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know. And whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things, they corrupt themselves. So, oh, these certain creeps, these certain men, these defilers of the flesh, these guys that are leading the church into uh, unbelief, leading the church into rebellion, leading the church into immorality, um, speaking evil of dignitaries. You know, they, they just speak evil of what they don't even know. And it's interesting, as you share the gospel with people, people who are not born again, their arguments against Christianity, uh, it, it becomes very harsh and it can become very severe. And in my opinion, it, it's not fair. It's not very fair inquiring on their part. It's not reasonable. And the arguments that they begin to use, it's, they begin to speak evil. And I've been in conversations lately where, where one will speak evil concerning the Christian faith. Speak evil concerning the scriptures. Speak evil concerning the church fathers. Speak evil concerning um, the, the missionaries and the workers of miracles uh, from, from the farthest day back of the church to, to present day. And and it's just, it's, they're not fair accusations. They're not reasonable accusations. Simple studying gives simple answers towards those questions. And, and it just shows that, that the natural man... Uh, speaks evil of the things that they do not know, and whatever they would know naturally, uh, they they just transform into almost werewolf type status. They are brute beasts, and they corrupt themselves. Uh, a man, pastor named Green, says, "How ironic!" Actually, he says, "Ironical." I don't know if that's a, a, a word. How ironical. That when men should claim to be knowledgeable, they should actually be ignorant. And when they think themselves superior to the common man, they should actually be on the same level as animals. And be corrupted by the very practices in which they seek liberty and self-expression. And so Jude goes on to say in verse 11, Woe to them! There's a few woes in our language. There's whoa, and then there's whoa, okay? And the whoa one would be more what I'm talking about here. It it can be translated horror, horror to them. For they've gone in the way of Cain, and, and here we have a bit of a history lesson again. They've gone in the way of Cain. You might remember that in Genesis chapter four, Adam knew Eve. The first man, the first woman, and she conceived and bore Cain, and she said, "I have required uh, acquired a man from the Lord, and as those the, the the man Cain grew up and his brother Abel grew up, uh, one day you know they, be, they gave a sacrifice to the Lord, and the scriptures say in Genesis chapter four that Cain was a tiller of the ground, and so the sacrifice that he would bring would be the fruits and the vegetables and such, and the produce of the, of the ground. And, uh, and yet Abel was a shepherd and a tender of sheep. And that he would bring his sacrifice to the Lord was one of a slaughtered animal. And the understanding is that by that point, even through what covered up Adam and Eve's sin, that the acceptable sacrifice before the Lord was, was needing to have um, a blood sacrifice with it. And so it says there that Abel's sacrifice pleased the Lord, but Cain's did not. You know, there's a difference in cost when you you kill a bull or a lamb and sacrifice it versus when you pluck a carrot or a radish. You know, I mean, the reality is there's difference, all right? And when you bring that difference before the Lord, he says, look, This is pleasing to me, and it's all a picture of what will follow, and that there will be one that will be sacrificed, and it will be a very costly sacrifice, one who's never sinned. The creator of the world, Jesus Christ, will be sacrificed. And that's what's necessary for the remission of sins, all right? Not not the turnip or the cilantro sprig, okay? Um, And that just made Cain very bitter and angry, and he started hating his brother in his heart, and he would end up killing his brother. He would end up murdering his brother. And he would be judged by the Lord for that. He would become a wanderer because of that. And it says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, that this second generation of Cain was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. Now, whether it was because of the blood sacrifice from Abel or the uh, fruit juice sacrifice from uh, Cain, there definitely was a heart problem in Cain. Cain's way that we read of in Jude was the way of godlessness. Godlessness. It was a way of sensuality and violence and lust and greed and blasphemy and pride. He had self-regard in his heart. And he had envy of his brother. Guzik says, Cain typifies a way that the certain men from Jude follow in. It's the way of unbelief and empty religion. It leads to jealousy, persecution of the true godly, and eventually to murderous anger. See where all this can lead us? Even here, there's a warning for us. That as we get away from the scriptures, we get away from the word, and we, we let unbelief creep into our heart. Last week, we referenced the book of Hebrews chapter 3, and it talks about how we need to be in fellowship with one another regularly, daily even more so as we see the day approaching we need to speak encouragement and exhortation into our lives lest we be hardened by the sinfulness by the deceitfulness of sin and lest there creep into any one of us an evil heart of unbelief being in community with one another in the gospel helps keep us sharp it's just little little filings on each other, just every interaction we have. It's just so good for us to keep us sharp as iron sharpens iron, just little bits of burrs of unbelief and doubt creep in and just being with one another and talking about the Lord and encouraging one another, sometimes correcting one another, sometimes full on rebuke if it's got to come. And it's just like a rasp against the rough surface that brings, keeps us true and straight and in that narrow And so these men, as it says, Cain was an example. How was it spoken of of Cain there? Um, They've gone in the way of Cain. Then it says they've run greedily in the error of Balaam. Now, Balaam, it says for prophet. Balaam's story is found back in the book of Numbers, chapters 22 through 25, and then later he's referenced in chapter 31. Uh, during the time where the children of Israel came up out of Exodus, Israel came into the land of Moab. They beat the Amorites in battle. And when they got near King Ma- uh, Bala- B- Balak, I've said it a hundred times in my life, but King Balak of Moab sought the help of a prophet or of a seer named Balaam. So you've got this story, you've got a king named Balak and you've got a, a prophet named Balaam. Okay, not confusing at all, right? Uh, and, and the king says, hey, can you come and overlook, come up to this high place and let's overlook the children of Israel as they're coming into the land of Moab. They're going to totally destroy us. Look how huge they are. They're going to destroy us. They're going to take over our land. And can you just come up here, Balaam, and can you pronounce a curse over the nation of Israel as they come into the land? And the Lord told Balaam not to do it. But he heard that there was a great sum of money in it for him. And so he kind of rebelled against the Lord and he gets on his donkey and he starts going towards the king to give some sort of a prophecy. You know, the angel stops the donkey and the donkey ends up talking and all of that. We don't have time to get into the sweet talking donkey story. Um, But finally, the Lord says, okay, you can go. You can overlook the land and you can watch Israel come in and you can stand there with King Balak but you only speak what I tell you to speak. And so the story is that he goes there and he's overlooking the people and he says, hey, I just want you to know, I can only speak what I'm told to speak by the Lord. And instead of pronouncing a curse over the children of Israel, Balaam pronounced blessing and wonderful blessing over the people. And the king got so mad, what are you doing? I'm paying you. Hey, I told you, I gotta say whatever the Lord tells me to say. And so the second time, third time, fourth time, He can't get a curse out. He can only bless the children of Israel. And later on, he tells the king, you know what? I can't curse the children of Israel, but I can tell you how to bring a curse on them. And he says, you let the women of your idolatrous people go in and have relationships with the men of Israel. And that will turn their heart from following the Lord, and it will turn them to worshiping idols. And a few chapters later, you see that the people of Israel, the men of Israel, fell into sexual immorality with the women of Moab, and they began to turn their hearts away from Yahweh. So much so, it was such a wicked thing that as Moses and the, and the good men were, were having a conversation outside the tent of meeting about what to deal with this horrific sin that's going on, a man walks right in front of them into the tent and begins to fornicate with a woman. And Phineas, this mighty man of God, comes, he takes a spear and he thrusts a spear into the tent, killing both of them in one thrust. And so there's this example of greed in Balaam who just had to get the money. And oh, I just, now I can't even curse him. But you know what? I'm going to lead other people into sin too. So there's greed as well as leading people into immorality. It's the story of Balaam. And sadly, tragically, at the end of Balaam's life, in Numbers chapter 31, uh, God takes vengeance on Balaam, the son of Beor, and kills him. With the sword as he's purging out that land. I do appreciate what Constable says that Balaam stands for two things. He stands for the covetous man who is prepared to sin in order to gain reward, and he stands for the evil man who is not afraid to commit the greatest of sin, to teach others to sin as well. Uh, And and, uh, there's another history lesson here regarding these men as we continue to move on. So you've got the story of Cain, you've got the story of Balaam, and there's this final group that these men perish in the rebellion of Korah. You read about the rebellion of Korah in Numbers 16. I believe I popped those up for us uh, to be able to follow along. I could be wrong, but... Let's listen to how the story of Korah goes. Now, Korah, the son of Izar the son of a lot of other sons, okay? Uh, He took men. And in verse two, they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation, men of renown. They gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, you take too much upon yourselves for all the congregation is holy. Every one of them, And the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord? So you've got this story where the children of Israel are moving along and moving along. And you've got a man who's who's a great man of the people. He's a leader. He's over, over 200 other leaders. And he says, you know what? I'm just sick and tired of Moses acting like he's the boss around here. Like, we're all created in the image of God, and I think we can all do just as good as Moses. And so he gets these incredible representatives of the congregation, men of renown, and he just stands up and causes like a bit of a coup, a bit of a mutiny against the leadership of Moses over the people of Israel. It's a very heartbreaking thing for Moses, and he sets up this uh, test to see, all right, you think you can lead better than me? Let's go ahead and bring it to the Lord and let us let the Lord decide. And in Numbers 16.31, it says, It came to pass as he finished speaking these words that the ground split underneath uh, Korah and his family. The ground split apart under them. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households, with all the men of Korah and all their goods. So they and all those with them went down alive into the pit. The earth then closed over them and they perished from among the assembly. Then all Israel who were around them fled at their cry for they said, lest the earth swallow us up also. And a fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering incense. So, you know, there's this rebellion against authority. And it's a story that goes clear back to, um, to the Garden of Eden, rebelling against the authority of God. And here we see it in Korah, leading this rebellion against Moses and Aaron. It's interesting. According to William Barclay, there was a set of cult leaders back in the day, of Gnostics, called Orphites. And these Orphites, this cult regarded Cain, Balaam, and Korah as great leaders of the Old Testament. Barclay regarded much of what Jude wrote here as a symbol of these um, Gnostic cult leaders, okay? So each of these examples, you've got Cain, you've got uh, Balaam, and you've got Korah serve as examples of different aspects of unbelief and what it does in our heart. Cain is given to us to show the arrogance and the malice and the false piety of apostates. They're examples of religious unbelief. Balaam is an example of greed, of subversiveness, a seductive character of apostates, of covetous unbelief. And Korah, shows what unbelief leading to uh, uh, sedition toward rightful authority. And so these are things that can even creep into our church today as we don't believe the word of God. We'll be like Cain and we will rebel against God's authority in salvation I don't need the blood of Jesus to wash over my sin. I can make it on my own. I can do it on my own. I'll just go ahead and pay the penance. I'll go ahead and say the Hail Marys. I'm going to go ahead and just try super hard, and I'm just going to do it my way. That's of the rebellion of Cain. Or the rebellion of Balaam is to reject God's authority and separation and to not be united together with those who don't believe and see that, Just in Solomon's life is, uh, I believe it's 1 Kings chapter 11, talks about Solomon and how he began to heap up for himself wives from all sorts of different nations. And he would end up having something like uh, 1,000 wives and 700 concubines or vice versa, you know. And it says that those wives turned his heart to worship idols. And we could slip into this rebellion against God's authority regarding separation and not being unequally yoked together with non-believers. And even today here in Prineville, we could be like Korah and rebel against God's authority in service. Just as Korah denied that Moses was God's appointed servant and attempted to usurp his authority. It's how church splits start. Taking upon yourself the mantle of authority that God has given in anointing pastors and elders over the church. We move on to read how these apostates are depraved and doomed and we're given five more illustrations from nature. Raise your hand if you love nature. Okay, a couple people. You're going to love the next you know, 10 minutes. The rest of you are going to hate it, right? Nature's pretty neat. All right. He goes on to say, These are spots in your love feasts while they feast with you without fear. It's interesting. Spots here actually when you do the dictionary lookup: up, uh, the definition is of like shoals and coral reefs that catch ships in the shallow ground. And he says that the, that's what these guys are. They're just hidden spots as you're trying to sail along that, that would cause you to be stuck and cause you to eventually, you know, die there in the perils of the waves. Uh, they're spots in your love feasts Of course, a love feast was kind of like a potluck of church of the day. They would have the communion time and they would feast together and fellowship with one another. And he says, these guys come in and they're just hanging people up and they're feasting in the midst of the, you know, the the church potluck and they have no fear. They're just there and they know they're there to cause divisions and to send people away to hell and they don't even care. They have no fear. They're just going to come in and creep in and try to draw people away. That's the first example from nature. Secondly, they are clouds without water carried away, carried away by the winds. And so you can only imagine if you're in the desert place or, or you're a, a farmer hoping for your crops and your livestock for those clouds to bring the sweet moisture and the sweet rain and the sweet life that, that, that water would bring. And yet the clouds come through and they're just dry and they don't bring any water. In fact, in the Middle East culture, The clouds that didn't bring rain just caused humidity and made the heat even more unbearable. Uh, And so they've got this uh, cloud analogy towards them. They are late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. So, uh, you know, they should have had fruit by this point in the harvest, and yet they've got nothing. And we remember from Jesus Later on in his earthly ministry, how he cursed the fig tree for having the leaves, but there was no fruit on it. Uh, Some sort of outward religious show, but inside there was no fruit. And here you have that these certain men are like those trees that should have produced a harvest, but they never brought forth fruit in their life. They're twice dead. I like some translations say that they're doubly dead. They're doubly dead. Or that this twice dead could mean that they're dead through and through, from the outside to the inside. These guys are just dead even on the inside. A third view of what this twice dead is that it could mean dead in reality as well as dead in appearance. And a fourth view is that this doubly dead or this twice dead means that they're dead in their sin as well as they've got an outcome of eternal death in their life. These doubly dead uh, dead uh, trees here. Pulled up by the roots. Verse 13, they're raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame. And you just picture just a frothy sea. You know, Paul would use the example of the sea being people who are just led to and fro by every desire and every wind of doctrine just carries them. Like You have no grounding in the word of God. So the next book that comes out or the next seminar that comes out, you're like, oh, I'm going to go listen to this guy. I'm going to go listen to this lady. You know? And you just don't have any bearing or grounding in the word of God. And you're just tossed to and, and, fro, and, to and fro throughout the sea. And, uh, and the Lord desires, desires us to be anchored in his word. But these individuals they 're raging waves of the sea, and as you can imagine, and you know, the coast is an interesting place. You know, I was just there a couple weeks ago, and you go and you see what the, what the waves can stir up up near the beach, and it 'll bring stuff in it 's on the nasty, frothy side, and it has the nice aroma to it, and it 's just pleasant isn 't it? Some of you love the beach, and I kind of do, and I'm married to a gal that wouldn't care if we never went back there again. And so, um, but you know, you get sand in your buns, and it's like, what else, where else can we go for vacation? Um, you got the dead fish and the dead crabs, and it's just the symbol here is the frothy uh, trouble of the sea, bringing the nasty stuff in with it, foaming up to their own shame. They're wandering stars for whom is reserved the darkness of blackness forever, Appreciating Constable in this understanding of the stars, he says, uh, some stars move about in the sky differently from the other stars. We now recognize these as planets and distinguish them from the stars. Similarly, the false teachers behave out of harmony with the other luminaries. The Greek word planets, which translates, uh, translating into planets means wanderer. So long ago, Constable says, stargazers observed that these wanderers across the sky were different from the fixed stars. Likewise, the false teachers had gone off course and had led people astray. So he's, you know, there's, there's those that are fixed in the word of God, speaking the truth, staying the course, and there's those that are just the wandering stars um, whom is reserved and there's judgment upon them, the blackness of darkness forever. Uh, verse 14, now Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied about these men also saying, behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all who can, uh, on all to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their deeds, ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So very interesting. This this is a quote from Enoch. It's a quote from the Apocrypha. Enoch, who was seventh from Adam. uh, He was a holy man and he walked with the Lord and the Lord took him to heaven one day. He's one of two men in the scripture that didn't die, but just was shot up uh, into heaven and, uh, and apparently he had written down some prophecies and they were kept, some believe, I think Tertullian writes that his writings were kept on Noah's Ark and preserved through history and the tradition from Enoch uh, was was brought uh, even to the present day in this apocryphal uh, book. But uh, there's, there's a little bit of controversy though whether this was a pseudopographical book which was falsely attributed to the actual Enoch of the book of Genesis. Uh, One way or another, whatever he spoke was good in this case because Jude quotes from it here and says that uh, he was right in how the Lord is going to be judging wickedness. Now, just because Paul quotes from an apocryphal book doesn't mean that that apocryphal book is put on the same authority as inspired by the Holy Spirit as the rest of scripture. Just mean that there is some good things that are said in some of these apocryphal books. You know that Paul would also quote from pagan writers and Epimendes and, and in the book of Acts chapter 17 and in the book of Titus, he'll quote from full-on pagan guys that happen to have said some good things. And you know what? You got a point there. And Paul could speak that. But it doesn't mean that it's on the same authority of Scripture. And so even in the book of Jude, you've got a few different quotes uh, from the Apocrypha that Jude would use to make his point. So, uh, and the quote from Enoch is an exciting eschatological quote that the Lord is going to come one day, And that's something that we know about the second coming of Jesus. This is after the tribulation that he is going to come back to the earth and he is going to come with ten thousands of his saints. When you read the book of Revelation in chapter 19, you see that he with the armies of heaven on white horses will come back. It's my personal belief that those are the saints with him. And you actually can read about that also in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 13, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. And, and it's going to be exciting because in a couple weeks, we're going to start the book of Revelation, and we're going to get a bit of an idea of God's plan for the end times. We're going to see what that second coming will look like with the saints coming back on white horses. That's going to be a few weeks into it by the time we get back to Revelation chapter 19, but we will get there. One day. And when the Lord does come back in that second coming, he's coming to judge. He's going to judge a Christ-rejecting world. He's going to judge uh, the, the Antichrist and the false prophet. He's going to judge wicked men who are coming against Israel there in the battle of, of Armageddon. And, uh, and God will have the judgment and Christ will have the victory. As we wrap up here, we're just going to go through verse Oh man, it's already 11.35. Yep, no, we won't. We'll come back tomorrow and we're going to have this great, what I call the red words here because it's just, again, more shaking of the shoulders against these apostates. And next week, we're going to close with just the beautiful doxology of Jude. So if you guys will, you can go ahead and close your Bibles and we'll have the worship team come back up. And once you set your Bibles aside, will you stand with me?